Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 309 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we went into the metaverse and reported back on what we found, including our meta face-to-face meeting in a Horizon workspace. Check out the episode for more details. And in fact, you should be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our episodes. In this episode, we continue with a bit of a new tech theme, and we'll take a look at the wild world of NFTs. Will Tom and I be minting our own NFT for our podcast? Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be talking about the world of non-fungible tokens, commonly known as NFTs. In our second segment, we look at whether new technology announcements are hot are hot or not anymore. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, the rise of NFTs and what lawyers need to know about them. In our last episode, we talked about the emerging metaverse and how people might be using it. Uh, We mentioned that the definition of the metaverse is uh, that it's something that's going to support continuity of objects and continuity of payments from the real to the virtual world. And so it makes sense that this week we're talking about non-fungible tokens, otherwise known as NFTs, um, and that th- because they're a part of that. They are part of how objects and payments are going to extend from the real to the virtual world. Um, they're connected to a crypt- cryptocurrency. They're making artists, athletes, and others a fairly obscene amount of money. Dennis, uh, you have mentioned that People can define NFTs, but it's actually quite difficult to explain them. And I guess we're going to try to do that. Uh, seems like a good place to start, doesn't it? So NFTs, to me, are, are especially interesting these days because they sit at the intersection of several technologies that people have difficulty understanding. So, you know, blockchain, digital art, you, you know, there's a payment component, crypto, all these other things, and they all come together and they tend to be talked about a lot. People seem to be making a lot of money and there's a tremendous sense of FOMO, the fear of missing out around them. And they're also so hot that we're just now starting to get the thing of that uh, where people saying they're overhyped and they have nowhere to go but down. And so we've uh, longtime listeners will recognize the classic Gardner hype cycle uh, in effect there. So we're we're definitely at, a, at at one of those top levels of the hype cycle right now. So which was where it becomes important to really understand what's going on and to start to sift through what is uh, let me call somewhat ironically here, uh, what is real and what is not real and and what we need to pay attention to and what's gonna what's going to last. So uh, 
I was I was looking at some definitions, and I, I have like a, a favorite one because it's typical of what you see these days. Um, and part of the reasons why I I said that uh, it seems like it's easy for people to do definitions, but not to explain NFTs. So I I love this one. I'm not going to credit to it to anybody, but it's, they say non fungible tokens are digital tokens that are not fungible. Period. Okay, so so Tom, I have now, as you probably recognize, I've reversed our usual roles, and now I have thrown onto you the uh, the job of presenting some good definitions of NFTs to get us started with. Well, what's funny is is that I was going to I was going to add the link to that definition into the show notes, and then I read it, and I go, "This is terrible. Why would anybody want to put this in the show notes?" And and I understand why now. Um, all right, so it falls to me. So here is my best uh, take at a definition of non-fungible token. Let's break it apart. Non-fungible means that it is not exchangeable for anything else. Um, you can exchange a dollar for another dollar. So if I give you a dollar, you give me a dollar back, that's fungible. It can be exchanged. But you cannot exchange, for example, a one-of-a-kind trading card. If you traded it for someone else's trading card, you'd have something completely different. That is what makes it non-fungible. It is something that you cannot exchange for anything else. And then the second part of that is a token. Token can be anything. Um, it can be something in the physical world. It can be something in the digital world. Where we are seeing it most often these days is in the digital world, digital works, art, and music. We'll talk about how crazy some of that is getting to be. Um, and then what you do with a, with a non-fungible token is you mint it. You create that non-fungible token. And to do that, you are creating essentially a digital file that lives on the blockchain. So now we've included this kind of kind of economic uh, asset that lives on the blockchain. But what that means is, is that it cannot be copied. It cannot be edited. It cannot be deleted. It cannot be manipulated. So it guarantees its authenticity. So that if you purchase that one-of-a-kind token, you know that you have the authentic version of it. Um, we are seeing lots of people do lots of things with stuff. I see that Adobe is preparing, is putting a prepare as NFT option into Photoshop. So you can make a, an NFT using software you already own. Um, just as we're recording today, Instagram is announcing that they're going to add an NFT option into Instagram. So you can actually mint an NFT while you post your pictures to Instagram. Um, Samsung is going to be launching um, a TV-based NFT explorer where you can browse, where you can purchase and display your own NFT art all from the comfort of your living room. Um, I think it's crazy. Uh, Dennis, uh, I think you think it's the beginning of a new uh, age of, of mega investments, but uh, where are we headed from here? Well, I mean, it's, it's I, I see it as the start of Web three, and and I, I think that you know part of the difficulty is that uh, with what what you were saying, I would say that it's that authenticity that can't be uh, counterfeited. So uh, so in in some of these NFTs, because they're digital, you you can copy them, you can do things, but they're they're their own sort of unique token. So there's a a story where somebody bought an NFT of uh, 
a let's call it, I think it was the first edition of Lord of the Rings, and they were planning to, and they spent a lot of money, a couple million dollars, and their plan was to uh, do a whole new set of movies and stuff with Lord of the Rings. So uh, the problem was they sort of fundamentally didn't understand copyright law. Um, so what uh, what I like to think in terms of NFTs is the problem that they were designed to solve. Um, so, uh, uh, there, so to me, there's two things. So one is how do we know that something is authentic, especially when it's digital? Um, and then how do we know that a digital object, uh, has uniqueness? Um, so how do we know it's the original, it's the one that has value because, one of the, the thing as we move from paintings to photographs now to digital art, the uniqueness um, of each object has become uh, less clear. Let's say so. How do I know that I have the original? So it became difficult when we had photographs, and so how do we value that? How do we know that we have the original when we have digital art? Um, and, you know, there's one of the great examples of NFTs is the NBA is selling NFTs of videos of dunks. Okay, so you can go out and you can find like a zillion videos of the same dunk. You can copy it. You can do those sorts of things. But if you own the, NF, uh, the NBA NFT of that dunk, then you know that you have the authentic uh, version of it that has has value because it's certified by the the NBA and that and so that gets us to the question of like how do we determine the actual value of that because that sort of feels like having a you know a baseball card or something like that but as we uh, so that's that's uh, that uniqueness of the digital object and then also I think as we looked at uh, there was actually art that was just digital. So like uh, art in video games and other things like that. And we said there, it's it's really amazing art and there should be a market for it. But if somebody could just make a copy of it digitally, then how does the art, how does somebody who's a buyer know that they have something of value? So NFTs kind of address, you know, some of those issues of authenticity and uniqueness over something that is, you know, by its nature, being digital, reproducible in exactly the same way. Um, and then as uh, and the sort of first applications we see are in the investment area, which I think makes uh, a lot of this more difficult because it does seem like we're in a bizarro world where you have these things where have NFTs that of uh you know, essentially animations that are worth millions of dollars right now. So I'm going to go on a rant right now because I, and I'm going to push back against your thesis, which is I don't believe the NBA was sitting around thinking we've got all these videos of dunks. We have to make sure that we know that they're authentic. They were not thinking about that. What they found was, hey, we just found a way to make obscene amounts of money on these dunk videos Let's put them out there, and oh, by the way, they're authentic, and we can prove that they're authentic. So this is a solution in search of a problem. I don't think it's a problem it's trying to solve, and so let me go on my rant. So here's, here's some examples of 
of what we are seeing. So, and, and I think that this started a couple of months ago with a digital artist named Beeple. Beeple uh, kind of, I think that's where the news started to get crazy, where he sold an image. Um, he used to sell prints for $100. He sold a digital image for $69 million. What one day was worth $100, suddenly as an NFT is worth $69 million. For that, the owner gets the limited rights to display the image, but really what they're getting is the bragging rights to the original and an asset that they can resell later. We'll talk about investments. We'll talk about that resale value. That's where I see the value here as an investment. That's We'll talk about that a little bit later. But how does it come to be that an artist who is only making $100 prints now makes $69 million prints? I think that's insane, and there is something fundamentally wrong with uh, with what we're doing here. That's why the other examples are equally insane. There's an 18-year-old artist. His name is Fawocious. His art on his website is selling between $300,000 and $3 million each. And it's garbage. It's garbage art, and it is selling for that much money. You can buy, this is what kills me the most, you can buy a virtual pet rock, an image of a rock. It's not even a real rock. It's a drawing of a rock for $300,000. I don't view that as a problem in search of a solution. I don't view that as we need to make sure that this drawing of a rock is authentic. It is here. Here's an image of a rock. Buy it for $300,000 and that's what you've got. A reporter for the New York Times unironically minted an NFT of an article that he wrote on minting NFTs and it sold for $560,000. The founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, he sold he mint he did an NFT of his first tweet. Granted, this is one that makes sense to me. Um, it sold for just under $3 million. I get it's interesting and it's an original digital copy of his first tweet. But the valuation, I think, of some of these is really unbelievable. Where I think it makes sense and where I start to see the value of it is that I, I found one, one uh, place on the web that provides you with an NFT to rare liquors. So if you are a collector of rare or expensive liquors, you can buy an NFT but it is attached to a real bottle of liquor sitting in a vault somewhere. And if you ever want to give up that NFT to be able to drink that rare liquor, then you've got it. And I can understand that. I also understand that Adidas is also doing NFTs. They are, you can buy access to digital image of animals wearing Adidas gear, which I think, okay, I don't want to spend $3,000 just on an image of that. But it gives you the rights to physical gear. It gives you the rights to other merchandise at no additional cost. So I sort of get that too. Um, I think that where I just don't, I, I don't get the ex escalation in prices because some of the stuff here I think has been priced wildly out of out of uh, value, and that's kind of where why I'm 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 on the very anti NFT side of this discussion today. Right. And I think that that's where people say we're at the top of the hype cycle, definitely on the investment side, uh, because so there's sort of a couple factors at work here. So you can say the first artist who sold an NFT at auction, you can say I can see how that has extra value and it could maintain value. I personally want to buy it, but I could see that somebody who invests in art could see the the value of that. Other things you start to it starts to make less and less sense, and so you have uh, 
this market for these things, it seems like people are just making tons of money. So everybody should jump in. And it's a so so you have the the gold rush piece of it. And then people um, who've who bought cryptocurrency that has uh, where they've made tons and tons of money are buying NFTs with crypto. Um, so it sort of feels like play money. Um, and and they're saying, I'm in a I'm in a market right now where uh, as we sit here, where we're all afraid to look at how our uh, retirement portfolios are doing. We know that interest rates are essentially zero, and um, people would say, I, I I'll take a chance on something that yeah, it might go down, even though I've never seen it go down, but it could go up in value like a you know like many times over. So why the heck not do this? And so I think what we're going to have that shakeout, um, uh, it's almost like there cannot help to be a shakeout of that. And that's why I think we're at the point where you say, I really kind of want to dig down into this and see what makes sense. Um, and, you know, if I'm already inv- if I'm an art investor, then I'm diversifying my art investment portfolio in some ways. If I do other things, you know, if I'm a collector, it's just like another category of collection, like baseball cards, beanie babies, and 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 those things. Uh, so I think that's where we're at. This weird space where the investment hype has kind of uh, surprisingly exceeded even the technology hype. Well, and you know, I think you're right. And here's here's where I think. It, it makes sense, you know, with with digital art. And if we're just talking about art, if you know, songs, artwork, uh, written pieces of work, those types of things, you know, in general, a copy is literally as good as the original. I mean, for all intents and purposes, having a copy, I don't care that I have a song that I listen to on Spotify. I don't need a, a person, a one that the artist deems is original to feel special because I'm not that kind of buyer. Uh, but for artists... You can sell work that there might not be a market for you because you can find a market that's like that. And what's interesting about NFTs is, and what we haven't talked about is, is that if someone purchases an NFT of your work and then they sell it down the road, you get a cut of that. You get a percentage of what that is. So you won't just make money from one sale. You'll make money from all the sales if the person who bought it or anybody that buys it uh, continues to profit off it themselves. You profit as well. So I, I, I like that idea that the artist still continues to profit from it um, no matter what happens to it down the road. If you're a buyer, um, the benefit of NFTs is you are able to financially support artists that you like, is that you, you are the fans and this is a way to be the super fans and to say, I like you this much that I am willing to do that much. I will not ever be that person, so I don't get it, but there are people like that out there. Dennis, like you said, if people are collectors, then NFTs work like any other speculative asset, and you hope that that value increases over time, and you have the opportunity to buy and sell those things just like you would any other investment over time. So I, I get that, um, and you know, it, and it shows that you know, in terms of hype, um, this, the the report just came out over the past week that the 
amount of NFT sales in 2021 was over $17 billion. Uh, and I don't expect that's going to change anytime soon. So uh, I think that it's, I think that it, it's it, right at the right point of the hype cycle where I expect it to be. But let me talk. And, and what's interesting is there's, there's two areas that I think are problems. And I want you to maybe comment on these two, Dennis. Um, I think that there's two issues with NFTs. One of them is uh, that in order to mint an NFT, you are essentially having to mine Bitcoin or mine Ethereum is what it's based on, another cryptocurrency. And there is there are not insignificant risks to the environment by creating an NFT. Um, it has right now it has a large carbon footprint. I understand that they are working on ways to reduce that. But right now, it takes up a lot of energy just to create an NFT. So if you are a fan of the environment, NFTs may not be for you. Um, that's kind of hard to conceptualize. So maybe let's talk about the other one instead, which is, you know, Dennis, you talk about how the authenticity helps counterfeiting, but it does not prevent fraud. And there's a ton of fraud going on right now in the NFT world where dealers are minting NFTs to works of digital media that they do not own. They don't own the work, but they are minting the NFT. And then they publish it on the blockchain. And guess what? The blockchain says it's authentic. So, well, this must be the right person. Um, it's causing a lot of problems right now. And I, I hope and, and hope that it's going to get worked out. And I see that, you know, some of these communities that deal in NFTs are are policing it or are trying to find ways to deal with it. Um, but uh, but the, the fact that you might wind up buying an NFT that the person who sold it to you is not really the digital artist um, is at least a, somewhat of a concern right now. We can kind of go too deep on this, but so typically you're, the answers to some of those things are like, well, there's $17 billion, but there are trillions of dollars in mutual funds. So we're really talking about a very small investment class. Uh, the environmental things, well, um, you know, let's look at what the oil companies, and the coal companies are doing to the environment in comparison, you know, and maybe that's a better place to, uh, to focus our uh, attention. But so there are different ways to look at this, this obviously. And I think there is a concern these days that one of the attractive things about NFTs for artists in the beginning was that there's nobody, uh, in the whole world who's been victimized more in the era of the internet than, than artists who've had their, you know, digital versions of everything they've done copied and other people uh, use them in a, a variety of different ways. And so, you know, maybe the NFTs kind of help artists at least be paid for the stuff that they do. But as, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the fraudsters and the scam scammers out there have, you know, like really upped their game and they've taken advantage of this. So maybe, you know, maybe some of those things will will start to equalize over time. But, um, you know, we just uh, unfortunately, you know, in the Web these days, we live in the world of fraud and scams and just, you know, anything new becomes uh, ripe ground for that. But I want to touch on on two things before we kind of talk maybe about what lawyers need to, to know. One of the things that's intrigued me lately is that I, I, I've been reading and I've learned that um, most of the world's most expensive art 
Um, so like the stuff that sells for fifty million dollars, hundred million dollars, the Van Goghs, all those, all those things, um, are actually kept in these warehouse facilities in Geneva, Switzerland, and they're uh, so valuable, so uh, you know expensive to insure, so difficult to keep uh, in, in the, the right environmental conditions and everything that they basically are in these warehouses. And um, owners typically don't look at them. And when they sell things, it's really like the title certificates are being exchanged. So in a, in a way, NFTs kind of um, oddly duplicate what's going on in the real world in, 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 in art. And then the other example I like to use when I think of NFTs, and this goes to your uh, your bottle of scotch uh, example as well, is that um, I own a a guitar, an electric guitar that's autographed by Bruce Springsteen. And I have uh, something that was printed on a, a color inkjet printer that is signed uh, by someone that says, this is an authentic Bruce Springsteen signature on this. And um, every time I look at it, I go, <laughs> you know, as long as somebody believes that. But if I said, if if I got that signed guitar and I had an NFT that it was associated with it that showed um, and conclusively demonstrated by um, showing what happened and memorialized that in, on the blo- on a blockchain, then I would feel really good about the authenticity of that. And anybody who wanted to buy it from me, if I ever. Uh, wanted to sell it, um, would would also feel uh, good about that. So it's that authentication piece, um, you know, documenting the the chain of title, those sorts of things that I think become interesting in the NFT world. We don't hear as much about that because everything is about how much money people are making. And, you know, will Tom and Dennis mint their own NFT, their own NFT for the podcast and, and make millions of dollars? Uh, but I think we're at the point where you sort of want to look at the practical examples. So time to get practical. I mean, this, I sort of think we always on these new technologies come back to what what does this mean for technology competence? But where are we with this and what what are the ramifications for lawyers these days with NFTs? Well, I mean, the the idea of NFTs touches so many different areas of the law right now. I mean, we just we've talked about uh, several just during this discussion. Copyright law, um, intellectual property has something to do with it. Um, NFTs can easily become part of a family law community estate. Um, they can become part of your probate estate um, and have to be dealt with there. Um, there are clearly, because they are investments, um, there will be some finance laws that probably come into play somewhere. And because there's fraud, I'm assuming criminal law comes into play at this at, at this place. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of legal angles here that lawyers are going to have to pay attention and, and at, at some level be aware that these things exist. I mean, as a digital asset that has m- value, you know, I think that family lawyers and probate lawyers are going to be the ones who really need to pay attention to this because it's it's 
it's a tricky way to think about it. And um, I, I think it's going to be, I think that more and more people are going to wind up having it as part of their estate or part of their division of property. And uh, I, I really think that that's going to be sooner than later for some people. Yeah, and there's going to be tax issues, lots of regulatory issues. Uh, uh, I don't think we've seen the full creativity come into play here. Like we were talking before the podcast, so I had a conversation with somebody who's uh, in the political world uh, who was looking at NFTs as a way to raise money for campaigns in, uh, in, a, in a very anonymous way that I'm not sure that existing laws would prevent. Um, so you have a number of those things. Uh, people have looked at NFTs as ways to raise, uh, to do financing of new businesses. You know, there's, so there's a lot of other things out there. So I think it's, there's going to be some areas where it comes into play. And there are in the, what I'll call the younger generation, uh, there's a fair fairly large percentage of, of young people who are experimenting with buying NFTs. So they aren't necessarily dying, but you can kind of see that in the family law, the estate planning area, that um, you're going to see that. And I, I think as it's it's definitely an area I think is, is that if you're a lawyer who practices in almost any area, you just want to have some awareness and and you shouldn't be surprised, I would say, within the next year or so that, you're, that you would be asked questions or have, have issues come up. So I think we've sort of answered the question of, like, should you invest? Well, you know, uh, it depends on your risk tolerance, right? No, but, but I don't think you're going to see Tom and I running um, into it, although I'm kind of interested in the companies that provide, as in the gold rush era, the companies that provide tools. Um, should you mint your own NFT? It's actually a very complicated process that you'd have to get other people in uh, involved in and own, uh, you know, uh, Ethereum and do some some other things to do that. Um, so I guess the big question, Tom, is this is out here, and we could we could teach people even more if if they want to buy this fabulous new NFT that we mint uh, for a million dollars. But other than that, kind of where where do you think we you would direct people to learn more about NFTs? I'm going to leave that to you because you may have some sources that I'm not aware of. Um, I want to I want to cover two things. I, I mean, I, I want to um, to uh, talk about future uses of NFTs, things that haven't started yet, but things that are possible. So we've talked about creating NFTs of digital artwork, but think about some of these that, to me, I'm some of them I'm I'm, I'm having trouble even considering. But think about this. Um, whether we'll see fragmentation of NFTs, selling a part of it. You can't afford that $69 million people artwork, but maybe you could own a share of it like stock. Um, digital twins, there have been people who predicted that all consumer products will have an NFT in the future. That Linking that physical item to a digital NFT will have some authenticity guarantees to the physical item. There are something called intelligent NFTs, NFTs that are given an AI personality that you can talk with them, learn new things. They change their personality. They live on the blockchain. That's kind of crazy. Um, medical NFTs, 
allow you to own and monetize your own personal medical information. What a horrific thought that you could actually do that considering how, how private that information is, but you can create an NFT out of your medical information in the future. Uh, and then and the last one is a well-being NFT. Connect, connect your NFT to all sorts of fitness apps. The more you exercise, the more you meditate, the more you get good sleep, the, the better you eat, the more the value of your NFT increases. So um, these are just a couple of the ways that people are theorizing that NFTs could uh, evolve over the next few years. And even though they still don't make me any more intrigued to actually go into one, um, I'm definitely interested to see what happens with them. Yeah, and there's there's so much uh, uh, creativity out there that's just starting to be discussed. And uh, so... Uh, our our friend Marty Schwimmer once uh, recently asked the question of like, what if I had an NFT associated with my house that I sold it? And like each time the house was sold in the future, uh, me or my estate would get a piece of that sale. So I would get the appreciation, which is kind of an interesting thing. If you're a creator, can I do something where I continue to get appre- the appreciation out of out of what I produce instead of the seller that led to the question of like well what if i had when i bought a house i had there was an nft associated with it and that proved up the chain of title and so i didn't have to get title insurance or anything anymore so just kind of theoretical conceptual things but you you look at that so there are a number of of places and so you're going to see uh more of those there there's some uh, there are good videos. Uh, there are some podcasts. I look at uh, anything that uh, Laura Shin is doing, and she was at, uh, who writes a lot on uh, crypto uh, and has a new book out called The Cryptopians, and she used to be at one of the big venture capital companies. Um, so there are some things out there and you just kind of want to get a good overview. I think this is one of these technologies where as a lawyer, you don't need to dive deep into the underlying technology. You just kind of want to understand the implications and then learn more as you need it is sort of where I feel, but, um, it is super new. Um, and there's a lot of hype out there. So you want to look for people who've been around it. And I think, you know, the venture capital podcasts and videos and stuff, uh, they do a good job of, of explaining it. Um, and then you want to look to some of the, uh, like Coinbase and some of the other, uh, you know, longstanding crypto uh, resources and marketplaces for for information on that. Uh, but it's it's, you know, you got to be critical in in what you read. So, Tom, bullish, uh, bearish, or uh, why don't you start and I will finish it out. I'm bearish in the short term, uh, bullish. In the long term, but in I think we're going to see the real value of NFTs uh, coming from things that we don't see right now. So I would be more bullish if we were seeing work that deserved to be celebrated making the money that it's making. Um, but, you know, that Beeple print, it made more than a Monet painting. And I'm sorry, it's not that great. It just doesn't it's not that great a print. Um, I think some people are treating NFTs like they're the future of fine art collecting, which means playground for the mega rich. Some people are treating NFTs like they're Pokemon cards, which uh, makes them more accessible to normal people, but also to the mega rich. 
Um, so I think I am bearish for myself. I'm just not an investor. And I, and I think, you know, what it comes down to me ultimately is, um, you know, I, I work really hard for clients throughout the year and some guy can draw five pictures of a rock and make multiple times X of what I'm making through the year. And there just seems something wrong about that. So um, I'm intrigued to see where everything goes. But ultimately, I, I weep at how people can make so much money to do so little. Uh, it's just amazing where we are today. And which is Tom's plea for our audience to 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 beg us to pay us a million dollars to create an NFT. But it, so. that's true. If anybody here is willing to pay us that money for an NFT, I will jump into that pool today. In the meantime, though, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor before we move on to our next segment. InfoTrack, the same company that simplifies your e-filing and process serving, is right now preparing Legal Up 2024 a free and fully virtual event for legal professionals. Learn new skills from experts around the industry. Meet fellow legal professionals from around the country. And tune into the latest and greatest trends and happenings from the comfort of your home or office. Join InfoTrack and One Legal on April 24th and 25th and see why 99.9% .9 of legal professionals recommend this virtual conference. Register now at infotrack.com slash legalup. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, Join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and it's time for another segment of Hot or Not. We pick a tech topic in the news and decide whether it is hot or not. We'll probably not agree in our assessment, but it's a fun way to hear our perspectives on tech topics. So we recently had another Apple product announcement, and there are more consumer tech product announcements on the horizon. We also saw new legal tech announcements at ABA Tech Show and Legal Week 22. Tom, do any of these announcements turn in our heads anymore? Or are they just part of the general landscape that we're driving by? So how, how hot are actual tech product announcements anymore. I don't have a ton to say about this, Dennis. Um, I'm going to say the heat level here 
is a necessary level. Um, I think it used to be that when the major tech companies, and I'm thinking more consumer technology, not necessarily legal technology, when they made announcements of new products, it was huge news. It was something that everyone stopped and they all went to go watch the announcement. Not to say that a lot of people still don't watch announcements these days, but I would say that the temperature and the, the level of interest on watching those announcements has decreased with time. Maybe it's because there are just so many announcements and we see this happening all the time and we're kind of gotten tired of seeing them. Um, but, uh, you know, the Apple made announcement. The stuff that they announced looks really cool. looks really great stuff. So there's no denying that the stuff is is great, although not all tech announcements are great. I, I would say a lot of legal technology announcements are, to me, not that interesting. They, but, but, but that's where I get to where it's a necessary level of heat, which is, I think it's necessary. I think they have to make tech announcements. If you're not making an announcement about a new technology, you're not relevant. You're not evolving as a company. You're not listening to your customers. And so um, despite the fact that it's not really that interesting to me, I think it's something that companies need to do. They need to make these announcements. They need to show um, here's what we're doing as an organization to what's the next new thing for us. How are we continuing to serve our customers and get better and do cool new things? Um, so, uh, you know, for me, that heat level, I would say, is a good steady one, but nothing burning. Dennis? So what I found, and, and Tom, you knew, you know, that when I saw this new Mac studio, I told you like, oh my God, it's so amazing. But there's, there's, uh, and you often say on these announcements that they're evolutionary, not revolutionary. And so I, I think this is sort of, I, I feel like the temperature has gone down in this. And part of it is because nothing does seem revolutionary more. Like it's all really cool. I think part of it is we wouldn't know what revolutionary was if we saw it anymore. You know, I, it's sort of my question. Like what I, when I saw what the Mac Studio is doing by, you know, kind of zippering these two processors together, I had the sense that that was something pretty amazing. But I don't, I can't really comprehend that because I, you know, that's not where my interest in technology is. Um, and the legal tech side, I sort of feel like we're in this thing where you're right. It's, it's people are announcing products and they're talking about features and stuff, and there's nothing that feels compelling. Um, and I think it goes back to uh, we've reached this point in technology where even basic technology is pretty darn close to magic uh, compared to what we used to have. And so we aren't, and the features are become have become so esoteric that we don't really understand uh, improvements, you know, like, so this is 80% faster than something else. I don't really even know what that, that means anymore or why, why I would care about it. And so I'm more interested in like, I'll say, what are the benefits of this? What are the outcomes I can expect? How does this make my life easier? And in the product announcement world with videos and all this this cool stuff, you kind of leave with the feeling like, I don't know what the benefit I have, and this is super cool, but I don't know why I will want to spend thousands of dollars on this. So I, I think I go to a cooler thing that is kind of cooled off, and I'm not sure how it would heat up again. So it's, it's just kind of a, we're in an interesting place uh, these days on on what we take for granted with technology and what's going to make us feel like we're seeing something magical again. So now it's time for our parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. 
So I'm going to go to a tip that I wonder if maybe I'm the last person to know about this. And if I am, then duh on me. But I would bet that a lot of you don't know about it. And that is, are you aware of using super paste on Windows? And Windows getting super paste means that you hit the Windows key and V and it brings up a box and it brings up a box of that contains the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 things that you copied to your clipboard. Um, so that if you copied a password and then, oh my gosh, I need it later, and I'd already copied and pasted five more things, you can still go back and get it. Now, it's not always safe to have those passwords on the clipboard, so maybe a good idea to clear that every now and again. But guess what? You can clear the clipboard from the super paste. But it also has um, places for emojis, for symbols, for GIFs. I'm sorry, that's GIFs is the pronounced, correct pronunciation of it. But it has all sorts of other things that you can search for and then cut, copy and paste from that clipboard. Um, it's a super easy thing to do. I didn't realize it had all that stuff that was out there, um, but it's really cool. And you can also, if, if you go into your Windows settings and go to System and then Clipboard, Select clipboard to sync, and it will sync that clipboard across all of your Windows devices if that so interests you. So kind of a cool uh, feature that I had never known about. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that from time to time, um, it's, you know, it's just like a nice, you know, where you say I copied something and then I get distracted and I copied something else. And they say, oh, darn it, now I have to go back. And th this can be really helpful. And it also I think that... I used to do 60 tips. That was one of my tips was like, learn like the stuff you can do with the windows key. And it'd be the, uh, I guess it's the, uh, the Mac key or the command key on, on a Mac. Um, but there are a number of things there that you don't have to learn them all, but there's a couple of things that can be really useful. So what I have is, uh, you know, we live in this world where, uh, things come up, and we don't know anything about them. And you can go on Twitter where, you know, people who were experts on uh, virology yesterday are now, uh, you know, experts on the Ukraine and on uh, World War Three today. And tomorrow there'll be experts on something else. So it's, it's hard to get great information on things. But sometimes you just want to know the history or some basic science and things like that. And uh, there's a, been a company that's been around for a while. It used to be called Great Courses. Now they've changed their name to Wondrium, so W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. And uh, so they have a, 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 these courses that are taught by uh, professors who are really great teachers in their video and audio courses and you can go deep on the topic or you can you can learn some you know specific things so say you want to learn about recent ukrainian history there's definitely going to be a course that would allow you to do that and you can actually probably just go right to the class uh something that you wanted to learn and it's uh, and they've been doing this for a long time so there's a lot of of great courses. Um, they also have a newsletter called Great Courses Daily um, that kind of gives you some access to, uh, and is, the Wonder Room is a paid paid thing, and it's very reasonable, like about $200 a year. And the Great Courses uh, newsletter will give you access to some sample lectures, and there's some pretty cool things available for free right now, but it's like a nice update, and it kind of reminds you like, oh, uh, here's here's an area where I once knew something and I'd like to learn more. I'd like to refresh my memory of that. And it's, an, it's, it's a really useful tool, especially these days where you realize you don't 
know as much as you thought you did about geography or history or virology. Uh, so highly recommended. And so that wraps up this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for our show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter or leave us a voicemail. That voicemail number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>